Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How are you this weekend? I'm great. I'm great. The weather is so nice. I love March. March is like one of this, these months that are so unpredictable. And so it's like snowstorm one day, beautiful sun the next. And so I was out today skiing, beautiful sun. It was like plus one. Oh, it's like, you know, Sandy, I, I know how far away you are from snow, but fuck, there is nothing better than it. <laughs> Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't agree, but here we are. And also, I'm not that far away from snow, okay? I don't know if you've heard, but there was a blizzard in Los Angeles last weekend. And as a result, I, I have like a terrible leak in my roof now because this city was not made for weather infrastructure, let me tell you that. But what has been cool is the snow-capped mountains that lasted for about two days before it became 20 degrees again and everything melted, which is just like a reminder of where we are at with the climate. So um, that small little story uh, took me through a bunch of emotional peaks and valleys, and I <laughs> hope it did the same for you. Well, no kidding. I, I mean, it is it is um, not good to imagine Los Angeles getting snow. Did you hear the news um, more than a week ago from Ottawa that the Rideau Canal didn't open this year? Oh, my God. I actually, okay, as a person who doesn't like snow, doesn't do winter sports, I did hear that news. And it made me really sad. It made me really, really sad. that it's, uh, That is terrible. And it, it also you know, kind of makes me wonder, um, is there going to be a time and are we at that time where it just will never open again? Oh my God. Well, and especially cause like, you know, folks are trying to figure out climate adaptations. So are they going to like add pipes under the ground so that it becomes artificially frozen every year? I don't know, but yeah, those are really sad milestones to cross. Yeah, I'm also going to tell you this story as as we're talking about like, you know, the future and weirdness of the future, because I just thought it was so funny. And I have to tell this story to you. So before we get into this, the episode, oh, my gosh. So I'm driving in L.A. the other day. Right. And I hit this intersection and everyone is like stopped. It's it's weird. It's a really big intersection. And yes, it's LA. So sometimes the regular roads turn into a parking lot type of thing uh, because traffic is so, so bad here. But this particular intersection, it's it's weird to, to be stuck in traffic. It doesn't make any sense. And because LA drivers can also tend to be kind of Flaky? Nonsensical. <laughs> <laughs> Flaky might be a word, but nonsensical is uh, possibly better. Um, not paying attention on their phone a lot, that kind of thing. There's lots of, lots of accidents out here. I decided, okay, I'm not going to wait to figure out what this is. I'm just going to try to drive around it because <laughs> I don't really know what's going on. Sure. So, so I figured out a way to drive around all of the stopped cars and guess what the thing was that was holding up all the traffic? Um, a mountain goat? <laughs> no this is about the future Nora oh. uh, no it was not a Martin mountain goat it was an unmanned google car 
oh. is a Waymo car. There's these cars that I sometimes see all the time now here. And um, I guess they are trying to map the road. I don't know what's going on. They're like affixed with a whole bunch of cameras that seem to be spinning at like a, a ridiculous speed. I haven't looked this up to see what exactly it is. But what it seemed what seemed to have happened was that that intersection, which is kind of a complicated intersection, confused the Waymo car, the Google car. And so it was just stopped in the middle of the intersection, in the middle of two lanes. <laughs> and so nobody could go forward. And so I drive past this thing laughing to myself, like, what the fuck is going on? And I guess I must have triggered something in it because it was like, oh, there's something moving ahead of me. I can now move. Oh, my God. And it started to <laughs> it started to follow me, <laughs> except for still still over two lanes. So all of the cars behind were still fucked. <laughs> it was just like, oh man, the future. It looks, um, it looks kind of dim. Wow, that is like if we're gonna update the the poem. <laughs> Mary had a little lamb. Like you almost had a car follow you to school one day. School one day. <laughs> school one day. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that's so, awesome. That's that. <laughs> we should talk about um, uh, dr- uh, driverless vehicles and driving on snow someday, um, but not today. Not yet. Maybe we should talk about something else today. Yeah, perhaps we should talk about something else, but for some gratitude. What do you think? Yeah, I think that we have a lot of gratitude to give out tonight, today, this morning. Isn't that right? We do. And in fact, this time I'm going to give out the gratitude because I'm feeling especially gracious. So thank you to all of you who have donated a new or changed your donations. And especially thank you to Cole, Sarah, Morgan, Valerie, Thomas, Greg and Nathan. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Before we get into what we're talking about tonight and or today or this morning, whenever you're listening to us, which I think is actually a really heady and important conversation uh, that you may not have thought about, let's talk instead about how this past week alone, this podcast became even more important. <laughs> what am I talking about? Did you see that uh, mainstream media is shedding jobs again? Oh, my God. Yes, yes. Yes, I have. And um, uh, it is just awful to continue to hear about all of the layoffs and so on that is going on in media because it's already clear that there's um, there's not enough people doing work in, in news media. Uh, but some of some of the layoffs that were announced this week were especially startling for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first thing that hit me was um, there's a couple of names that I saw saying they had been laid off by Global, which is owned by Chorus. Names that I had just mentioned in the daily news. So there's folks whose journalism that I rely on, on, that we all rely on to know what the hell is going on in this country, um, axed. I only saw young women being uh, announcing that they'd been laid off. I don't know if that is wholly the case but it certainly seemed like there was some sort of pattern there and there was an incredible amount of hate that these journalists got when they announced that they were laid off and the hate I mean it was hate that's that's not exactly like 
the standard kind of hate, but more ha ha ha, you've lost your job, you piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. Um, And so, I mean, it, it hurts just as much, right? But it's like, okay, on one hand, that's fucking not great. That's a not great sign. But what else happened was one of the people that got laid off is Rachel Gilmore, who's a journalist that, I mean, is just so attacked all the time on Twitter. Um, and I imagine on other platforms as well, but I see it on Twitter. And it's just like, you know, Rachel has been in this situation now for almost a year. And Global was like, yeah, you know what? Fuck, fuck her. Let's just lay her off. Like, what the fuck? Like, Global knew, are you, you, are you that fucking shitty? Like, you guys might as well be the people sending her hate mail if you're going to fucking treat a staff person that's gone through complete hell for you for the last couple of months and then be like, hmm, layoffs are coming. Who should we, yeah, let's, let's ask, let's ask the one that's life has been on the line because of us. Yeah, it's, it's pretty terrible. And it's also, I mean, there's, it's, we're getting close to March 8th, which is of course, International Women's Day and the type of, um, of risk that uh, that journalists like Rachel Gilmore take when they do the type of reporting that they're doing, but also generally women reporters and uh, the type of hate that they face. Um, I, I, I don't know. It just like did, did people talk about this at Global before deciding on the layoffs that they were um, that they were moving forward with? I don't know. It seems um, especially reprehensible in that way. And so, uh, I mean, fuck. Um, that's, it's terrible. And, uh, you know, uh, my heart goes out to all of the people who've been laid off and, you know, uh, I, I really feel for Rachel certainly in this moment. Mm -hmm. No, totally. Yeah. Like we've, we've crossed so many, um, points of no return that I, I think it's even hard to wrap our heads collectively around them because we, we have not developed, I mean, aside from a couple of us screaming from the sidelines about the role that management plays in all of this. Managers within media companies have been largely left off the hook when we're talking about harassment of journalists. The harassment tends to be focused on the people sending the harassing messages. And sure, there's some like you should support the people who uh, work for you. Um, some of that kind of conversation, which that doesn't actually anchor it in any kind of actual supports. But the role that uh, shrinking media, keeping people feeling incredibly vulnerable all the time, making them feel like if they mess up for anything that they're going to be the next to go or if a mob tries to quote unquote cancel them and depending on the issue that they will be the next to go. I mean, that just puts a tremendous amount of stress into someone's life that's just trying to fucking, you know, be a reporter, just do their job, right? And I I don't think that this is the moment that's going to do it. I don't know what that is going to be the moment that does it, but if we continue to refuse to talk about management in all of this, if we continue to refuse to talk about owners, the corporate approach to journalism, the profit motive, all of this stuff, it will just keep happening. It will just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And that means if you're a woman in journalism, uh, and it doesn't matter actually any anything more than that, if you're a woman in journalism, you will experience this kind of hatred. You will experience these backlashes. Uh, it will be nonsensical. It will not necessarily relate directly to your reporting. Sometimes it will relate directly to your reporting. And, um, you know, I, I guess in the workplace, like, God, I hope you're at least unionized. <laughs> I hope you at least have a union that you can call and say, make an issue out of this. The unions have to be bargaining language about uh, about workplace harassment, including the threats that, that that journalists get on the job into collective agreements to make sure that this does because it becomes management's problem. But Christ, like, 
there are so many bootlickers within this industry. There are so many suck ups. There are so many fucking uh, people that that think that if they just do like do the right thing, suck up, don't challenge power too much, don't at all question liberal orthodoxy, that you'll become like Rosemary Barton or whatever the fuck, like as if you'd ever actually want that. You don't want to be her. <laughs> you don't. You don't. You don't. Um, and it's like that's not how this works. Like either we're going to fucking call this stuff out and fight for things to be better and fight for alternatives so that we don't have to eat gigantic amounts of shit all the time, uh, or it's going to get worse. And those are literally the only two options ahead of us. And for the journalists who are like my age and older, like it, it just seems it's the silence is so brutal. And not just I shouldn't say silence because they're all like, oh my god, this is so bad. No, it's not about that. It's about using your fucking job in your workplace to make these things better. And I have not seen enough of that kind of solidarity. And I imagine other people who've gotten in these situations haven't either. And it's like, it's just going to keep happening, folks. Uh, at the same time that, uh, you know, the Vancouver Sun has a woke watch and uh, the Ottawa Citizen had some pretty horrible uh, far right material in the last week as well. I mean, shit's getting bad out there. Shit is getting bad. Um, there's another thing that I want to mention before we get into the meat of this episode, and that is that it's been a year since um, the war in Ukraine, and hundreds of thousands of people have been killed, and uh, the UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission in Ukraine has estimated that uh, 8,000 civilians have been confirmed killed at least, um, with and another 13,000 injured. Wow, 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 wow. And for what? And for what? And for what? And so, you know, I, I recall a year ago when um, it seemed as though everyone was... Uh, just like really excited about this war, about taking on Russia. It seems like with the months having gone by, people have um, come into some sense of sobering um, around this, uh, even if the government has not. At, but you, you'll remember if you've been a listener of this podcast for a while that we were like, <laughs> uh, come on, this is not the way uh, to respond uh, to um, the threats that we were seeing from Russia at the time. And this is the reason why. It's because the cost is so high. Uh, with all of those people who have died and all of those people who have been injured, they um, are connected to so many more people who are going to be traumatized, their lives forever changed or completely ended because of this conflict. And Again, um, you know, our governments uh, seem to have no um, willingness to, to, to try to, to stop like a, a further escalation of this war. And when people on the ground uh, do not criticize um, or have some way of stepping back and looking and seeing the horror that's uh, going to, to to be facing so many people. What we do instead is give our governments a mandate, give them a license um, to, to go forward with military action. And that's what's happened here over the last year. And I'm hoping that uh, we can be uh, collectively a little bit more careful 
with um, how we engage with with this sort of uh, warmongering from our governments moving forward. Yeah, although don't uh, forget that the budget will be coming down in a couple of weeks. And Sandy, how much money do you think will be there for the military? Oh, I'm sure it's going to be escalating, and I'm sure that some of it will be held in in places where we'll have to take a look at, like, you know, NATO or um, uh, NORAD or whatever else. But I I think that uh, we can expect that money to go up, not down. Oh, yes, I think that you're right. Um, Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens, if anything happens, or if this continues to just be this war of of bloodletting, really. I mean, it's, you know, the the invasion by Russia is horrible and should be condemned. But Russia obviously thinks that it can it can, uh, you know, be on the other side of this as uh, with a better global position than it had before it invaded Ukraine. That's really what this is about is, is global hegemony. And Keep in mind in the West that we only get a small slice of the story in terms of the support that Russia is getting, which makes it really, really difficult for us to can imagine that, you know, consistently, continually giving more arms to Ukraine is going to make much of a difference other than prolonging this war. There are other options to try and stop what is happening. And we've talked about that and fuck Russia and also fuck our government for a million different reasons, but in particular, <laughs> this. Now, for... For tonight's topic, Sandy, I want to give you a hypothetical, and I, I, I think that this hypothetical is going to help us get into what we're talking about tonight, okay? Hmm, I like hypotheticals. <laughs> so let's say that there's a group of activists, uh, let's say that they are indigenous activists, and they identify a problem, they want to fight something in, in their community, and they organize something, they have events, and all of a sudden, groups like more established like organizations that want to look left wing that aren't aren't necessarily indigenous groups and actually often aren't at all indigenous groups. They're like, oh, my God, look at what's happening here. We should just give these groups tons of money and, you know, check off of our list that we've done solidarity. We're good allies. All of a sudden, this group's got a lot of money, maybe not a lot of capacity. Things go off the rails. Oh, my God, there's infighting. And then the whole thing is a failure. Have you ever have you ever heard something like that happening before? <laughs> have I ever? <laughs> have I ever? Um, so, yes. I, I mean, there are so many different examples that we could use to talk about this story. Uh, but I was listening to Canada Land this week, um, as I'm sure some of our listeners uh, do. And there was a story about um, a, a very similar situation to the hypothetical that you just posed, um, focused on a black community that is a, a very similar story. And I I have to say, like, without getting into the meat of, of that story that was covered on Canada Land, and I, I don't know much about the meat of it. Um, I I don't know about that particular situation, but it was um, a black community group that was uh, uh, trying to uh, start an initiative and got a ton of money and it went off the rails. Now, while I was listening to this episode, I admit to being like so frustrated because I could hear things um, in the episode, like I could recognize things in the episode only because I am an activist who has been active um, as an activist for over 15 years, I could recognize things that weren't being pointed out that I think people need to understand about 
new organizations that crop up, especially from black communities, especially from indigenous communities who are trying to do really great things. It is important to report on, you know, when, um, on things of, of public interest. So, so when things become a problem that our, uh, uh, organizations become a problem, especially if they're a charitable organization, quite like me to we, but the, the problem is when it comes to black and indigenous organizations is like, you know, in terms of white owned organizations, there's like thousands of them and, you know, never hear about, um, when things go wrong unless they go really, really wrong. And you know, you're like expecting, um, that they're, uh, supposed to be able to, um, to, to carry themselves in a particular way, like me to we, like a, a, a totally established organization like me to we. Um, but when it comes to, to black and indigenous organizations, very often when we hear about some of these uh, sorts of uh, so-called failings, um, these organizations are quite young and um, haven't had a lot of mentorship or support. And that's kind of where I want to go um, with what I want to talk about. When these organizations um, start out, and they have like great ideas and they need a lot of um, support, the support that's required is more than just financial. And sometimes other organizations, um, maybe more established ones, uh, that want to, as you suggested, make themselves appear like, like they're, they're great supporters of the work of these indigenous and black groups will donate tons and tons of money to them. And that's great that they want to do that, that they should continue to do that. But there should also be some support offered, um, some mentorship offered, because for very many of these organizations, um, there might not be within a local community uh, the type of expertise that is needed to carry new activists through to how to create a successful activist organization. But like no one knows that these days. I think that that's the other thing that's really important to talk about is like on one hand, uh, you have established organizations that you mentioned like NGOs that are majority white dominated. Let's say we're talking about specific ones. I, and I actually am not convinced that a lot of them really have their governance in in hand either <laughs> and really have no idea how to suggest or help or mentor any kind of organizations. And so the combination between wanting to look like an ally, white guilt, not actually really knowing how to do like, I hate this term, but knowledge transfer. It's so fucking cheesy. But, you know, not actually being able to explain to someone how you start from A to B to C to D to actually get something off the ground. It, there's a real lack of understanding at all. And, you know, when... When I was involved with starting the Nagangana Foundation, payyourrent.ca, there were three of us that started this foundation and we wanted to make sure that we were doing it right. And one of the first things that we did was we called a lawyer because uh, Patty Koch, who's one of the founda founders, um, who you might know as Jindanis on Twitter, Patty was like, yeah, we got to do this right. We can't mess this up. And, and she had a line into someone. And it was so fascinating because even that process of going through like the legal side of things, like it didn't help us at all. And had the three of us not had our own experiences in trying to organize things and do things um, like from nothing into something, it would have been really, really confusing. And so now, you know, we receive $6,000 a month and Patty is like the big brains behind the operation. So she's able to make sure that that money goes where it needs to go. 
But we were very, very aware in the beginning that this could be fraught, that we had to have a really clear vision and really clear roles and a really good governance structure to make sure that this money was going where we said it was going, which is going to help uh, indigenous people, communities and initiatives through money that settlers pay. And that's why it's called pay your rent. And by the way, I encourage you all to check it out and donate and all this kind of stuff. It's great. But that process, like going from I have an idea or there is a need here and it could be literally anything from I want to have a getaway space for 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 black women. I know I have a friend that's trying to set something like that up and it's really, really, really hard. right? Or uh, we're trying to fight uh, against this project that's happening in our city. How do we do anything at all? And the answer is a GoFundMe and, and throw money at it. And like that's that's a fundamental shift in uh, approaching activism that mm-hmm. I don't think that we have come to terms with that is new, that did not exist like that even 10 years ago, let alone mm-hmm. uh, 20 years ago, obviously not. And so it's like the money comes first now and it comes first and furious if you're a marginalized group that 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 white dominated groups can say, oh, my God, this is so amazing. Throw money at them. Yeah, there's and I mean, there's something here about like the ease of of it, like how uh, you can demonstrate solidarity by just throwing money and then and being like, you know, you, you don't get it need to get into the weeds of like policy shifts. You don't need to get into the weeds of like um, educating your members or your group or, or trying to figure out uh, anti-racism within your community. But you can put out a press release that says, I, I put money to this organization and that seems really good. And there's points there and there's um, there's capital there, uh, social capital there. And uh, that's useful. But it, I mean, it, it, it can really hurt organizations like I, I feel quite lucky because uh, for myself, my own like foray into activism was through student unions as everyone knows and that (laughs) stop talking about that (laughs) I know but I you know I have to say like there for a long time in Canada there was like a really sophisticated uh, training mechanism for understanding uh, not-for-profits and how to build not-for-profits and how to to build organizations and advocacy and um, as I started doing more international work uh, especially through uh, BLM work, I can't tell you how valuable I understood that that was. Um, and just going to note uh, two things here. One is that another reason I feel quite lucky is that in the BLM story in, in Canada, very early on, we were contacted by a few lawyers, um, some who might listen to this show, if you are, hello, <laughs> a few lawyers um, who offered to help us, offered to support us in um, in setting up the things that we didn't know how to do. And that was monumentally useful. And we we had some elders who were who formed an elder council who helped us to think through some of the things that um, perhaps in organizations uh, that they had started in the past, they had learned and were able to, to help mentor us through that process. Um, the other thing that I'll mention uh, that makes me feel really lucky is that I, I know that my, uh, my colleagues in the United States who were doing uh, BLM organizing in the United States did, did not have that background. It was, it was in fact startling to see the, the, um, the 
disparity in like the support that one geographic location had versus another geographic location in just infrastructure. And, you know, you see that all come to a head in the 2020 moment where millions and millions of dollars are being donated um, to uh, BLM in the United States. And then like six months go by and still in 2020 in like November is when you start to hear people say, where did the money go? What's going on with this organization? Without an understanding that going from a $2 million organization um, to like uh, a a seven-figure organization, it it takes some time. It takes some infrastructure building and the scramble that you have to do (laughs) in between to get even just all the requirements that you need for like uh, to as an organization that exists in in uh, in a country like Canada or in a country like the United States that has re- like tax requirements for you, many of the people who are starting these sorts of organizations aren't that kind of expert, and it is uh, really hard to get yourself the type of knowledge needed in the timeline that uh, a public who's watching and waiting to hear what's happening next. Uh, expects uh, in the timeline that that sort of public expects. Well, and you you'd mentioned earlier, like this idea that there's a public interest, right? When when these groups become known uh, and 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 broadcast everywhere and and talked about, then all of a sudden they enter into a space that, I mean, frankly, no one signed up for. Like you don't sign up to do activism and then find yourself like in the national eye of, in the case of BLM, in the national eye of Black activism. It's just like out of nowhere, uh, people coming together to do good work become the experts on every single possible issue that journalists throw at them. And then that that politicians want to, and, and business people want to uh, have expression for for their kinds of politics, right? So it's like, oh my God, this is so, this is so overwhelming. Well, yeah. And the, and the thing that's like, like that I wish that people would think about in that um, sort of, uh, with that sort of frame of thinking, like not only do you not expect to be this person as you're setting up these organizations, it's like, think about the, the, the analogous organization in a corporate sense, right? Like they, they have like a a communications wing to, to deal with all of the, the, the journalists. They've gone through years and years of professional development (laughs) training, you know, like there's, there's departments that deal with all of the things that a scrappy activist organization is expected to deal with on the same fucking level. And it's like impossible for those organizations that make it through to the other side. It's like, man, um, you made it. Congratulations. That was an impossible task. But people treat these organizations um, as though they are uh, like corporate organizations, as though they are as sophisticated as organizations like Me to We, or even as though they are government sometimes. And that doesn't make any sense. Now, I didn't catch that Candleland story but I imagine that the reporting included some sort of insinuation of impropriety or maybe even theft like how did that get come through this reporting because that's always the the problem right is it's like it's never it's never oh my god these folks didn't know what to do with this money it was always like where'd the money go eh like did it did it go in your pocket you know so how, how did they deal with that on Canada land yeah, that is always part of it. And uh, like I, you know, 
it's it's been hard to especially you know since 2020 um with what what happened with BLM in the United States it's been it's kind of been hard to talk about because it's like um there's there's just such a willingness to believe in in um the like that there is something untoward going on versus like the 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 easier like the Occam's razor of it all, which is that just people just didn't have the the um, the skill that skill level that was required for how quickly an organization built up. In the Canada Land story, I think I, I, you know I'll first say that the reporter was quite careful to say that um, she was not suggesting um, that there was there was like um, any wrongdoing done on purpose. But there was insinuation of that there may have been some impropriety and like where where is the money and 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 those sorts of questions. And one of the things that I think people find hard to understand um, about at like activist organizations like this who who um, face these types of um, these types of uh, confrontations or struggles and issues is that it's like, this is not the place, um, to, 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 to like steal money. (laughs) This is not, this is not the place, um, to, to do that kind of, like if, if your goal is theft, uh, activism is not the place to do it because there are so many watching eyes. There's so much scrutiny and there's so much risk to your to your personhood. Like people are like the Schadenfreude is real. Like people are so excited and willing um, to take any any like tiny mistake and be like, fuck that person and fuck this entire organization and tear it down. What is more likely is that a mistake has happened or that somebody didn't have the skill to do something. And I could hear it in the story. I can hear it in the way that the story was told. Like I could, I could pinpoint um, the issues, Uh, you know, like whether it's, it didn't, it it seemed clear that uh, people didn't know um, certain rules around, um, you know, how to, how to set up um, certain types of organizations. And it's not like that stuff is the easiest to find out. Even as someone myself who is probably at this point in my life set up and um, helped to support in a not-for-profit way like probably uh, 10 organizations at least, I still have to check and double-check and feel very, very compelled uh, to check in with lawyers just so I can you know, to make sure that I've uh, crossed my T's and dotted my I's, even as I am a lawyer who knows how to do these sorts of things. <laughs> you know, it's it's really hard. But people tend to jump to the conclusion that, oh, there's there's something awful that's gone on here. And maybe that's that's because we hear about hear those stories and other types of organizations like uh, corporations, and we hear those types of stories in uh, political spaces. But I think there's also something here about the way that we treat organizations that are Black and Indigenous. And we say, 
well, we tried to help them and this was their fault. You know, everything just kind of fell apart. Like they didn't do things correctly or they, um, you know, there was uh, corruption uh, within. And the, the willingness that we have to believe in that type of corruption, I think, um, that speaks to uh, the systemic racism and uh, uh, colonialism of it all. And that's also a piece that was a part of this Canada land story that was, you know, like kind of hard to listen to is this, this idea that, you know, people could have, would have supported, stopped this, this issue, um, um, or like interjected, but were nervous about being called racist and so never did. (laughs) And that, and you know, it's just like another piece of the way that racism works oh my god (laughs) it's just really really unfortunate well it's probably a good time then considering that march 8th international women's day is on tomorrow and uh we're talking about the way that systemic racism white supremacy uh, finds itself into the kind of management and organization of these groups I mean, it's it's always, for me, a story that I always think of is the collapse or the slow collapse of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women Canada. And this was an organization, mm-hmm. you know, it was founded in the, in the 1970s after the Royal Commission on the Status of Women happened. And NAC was this national, uh, large uh, tent umbrella organization that was open to any group that identified as feminist. And so you had radical Marxists working alongside, like, you know, church ladies. And it it was, you know, moving together fine. It had some incredible uh, victories throughout the 1980s, obvi- like not the least of which, of course, is like the, the most radical abortion legislation in the world. Thank you very much for that fight. Uh, but also some interesting and important constitutional uh, victories that, that they managed to win. And then why does everything collapse? I mean, there's two reasons, but one of the reasons is, is neoliberalism and, and, the, and the neoliberal changes to not-for-profits, which, of course, is like what we're talking about and the way that money first and fundraising first and grants first and all this kind of shit is like what people think is the most important work, which is like, fuck you all, it's not. Um, but was also the election of the first racialized woman as president of, of NAC. And if you go and read 10,000 Roses by Judy Rebick, which is an oral history of the women's movement, the feminist movement, over many, many, many decades... Um, talking about the the collapse of NAC, there's a lot of white women who didn't stick around to help Sonera Tabani, who is the the president of NAC. And in retrospect, because 10,000 Roses was written in 2005 and and Tabani's presidency was in the early 1990s, they were saying like, they should have they should have helped her. They should have stuck around. They should have done more to support her. And like she was being attacked by government people, MPs in the House of Commons calling her really horrible things. And there was like this, the, the, the feminism and you would say white feminism of the feminist movement was unable to actually bring this organization forward with, with a racialized president. Um, and I think that rather because, because NAC collapsed and nothing replaced it, there hasn't been a lot of opportunities for activists to experiment with these things and to learn and to fail and to succeed and to fail and succeed together, right? It all kind of just separated, went up into the atmosphere, and then all of a sudden the internet comes around and, like, all the fuck we can do is GoFundMe. That's all we can do. 
right? So that period of time from 1995, 97 uh, into the 2000s, and then of course 2000 to 2000 and, and fucking you know eight when when all of a sudden things start to go really really digital, like that transformed how we understood uh, organizing and creating things. And so if you had never organized and created anything before that area era doing it after that area becomes really, really, really hard and really, really uh, confusing sometimes because you don't necessarily know what's going on. So, I mean, so that's one one whole piece. The other thing that while you were talking, I was thinking about, I, I you know, I wrote an article about the 60s scoop settlement, which is the 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 national class action lawsuit that was brought against governments all across Canada for the 60s scoop for government agency church agencies social services agencies stealing indigenous children and placing them for adoption or foster care with non-indigenous parents mostly white parents and one of the things that's part of the settlement is something called the 60s scoop healing foundation and in writing this article all of the survivors that I talked to were so upset about this foundation the settlement gives this foundation, which is supposed to be set up by and for survivors of the 60s scoop. So people who, again, are in it, like obviously the heart's in the right place. They're, they're doing really important work. They're all volunteers, which of course is going to be difficult. You know, that means people have to give up volunteer time. And they're given $50 million from the settlement and then extra money that's not paid out in the settlement to then, to then stick handle. And so this was established in like... Oh, now I'm thinking now it's been a while since I read the article, but 2018 or so. Um, and now, like four or five years later, it's still, still, still is struggling to establish itself because you can't just hand 50 million dollars to people who have good intentions and really good, good hearts and really want to do something good. It has to come with a ton of training. <laughs> it has to come with a ton of support. And um, and it's really, you know, it's a really good example of something where it's like the government has washed its hands in a very colonial fashion, managing to say, well, it's them. They're managing it themselves. This is not our problem. And then when you pose questions to the government, they're like, this is part of the settlement. This wasn't even our decision. Like, it's so colonial. It's so insidious. And, 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 the, and the logic of white supremacy is just all embedded in all of it that um, that you just, you know, you want to start pulling your hair out and, you know, hitting the wall or something. Yeah. The other thing that I, I've been thinking about with this since I heard the story on Canada Land and just been thinking about generally as an activist for years now is that we've got to be better at letting organizations try and fail. Like, God, like we've got a whole economic system called capitalism that is built on organizations trying, failing, trying again and failing and like, you know, not, you know, fucking being kicked out uh, with the bathwater when they do fail. But for, for activist organizations and advocacy organizations, we are wholly unforgiving. We do not allow people to to try something and fail. And my God, we have to be able to allow for that because we do not have the answers for any of the things <laughs> that we're trying to fight. So there is very rarely a rule book in which to follow. And for organizations who are indigenous or black, there's been generations of people who have not been 
able uh, to do the same sort of uh, advocacy training work that other organizations have been able to because of the history uh, that our our um, our elders and ancestors have had to deal with. And so, like, what is wrong with allowing an organization to try and fail? And instead of, you know, saying, here, we're just going to report on this uh, giant failure, trying to figure out how to support an organization out of a mistake, trying to support an organization to right the ship, uh, and figure things out instead of the sort of abandonment and, oh, you know, the like, how do I get my donation back um, sort of response that we do see um, currently, you know, like for the, the, the apparatus that um, for resources, for 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 corporate organizations, um, whether that be in um, in stocks or investments, the ways that these things things get funded, it pretty much guarantees that you can, uh, as, you know, you know, a greedy, shitty organization, try, try and try again and fail. And the risk to you personally isn't, it's just like, okay, I'm just going to try my next business. Whereas for, for us, where the risk is so high, um, for us personally doing the work and our, our um, individual reputations, sure, but the risk is far greater for the for the very serious issues that we're trying to contend with, be they racism, or uh, climate change, or the climate crisis, or colonialism. Like the risk is so so much higher. So why wouldn't we allow for multiple mistakes to be made? And for the like sort of uh, compassion and even if it's not compassion, just the fucking smart strategy of being like, all right, you went through a thing. Let me help you get through it so that we can figure out how not to make this mistake next time and to to make sure that we we accomplish the goal and um, and develop stronger advocates instead of people who are too afraid to 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 continue doing this work in the future. Mm. Yeah. And and we've also said too, like money, like don't just throw money at stuff. Do like think through other ways they can help. But if you're going to throw money to something, you're throwing money to something. It's not your fucking money anymore. Who cares what happens to it? Literally. Like that's the other thing. It's like, hey, white people, if you're going to give your money away, give it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they don't owe you anything. They didn't probably ask you for it. Maybe they did. Not. Who cares? Right. It's 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 not your problem. Where it might become useful for you to help someone is if you have skills and you very politely say, hey, do you do you want to know what I experienced when I did this or are you good? And if they're like, you know what, we're good, then that's fine. But this idea like that you mentioned that the white people around were like too afraid that they'd be seen as interfering. It's like, fuck. I mean, okay, if that's what you thought, then you probably shouldn't have been involved. So fine, that's good. But if you have these skills share them <laughs> like it's as simple as that just share them share share with people what you know because there are far too many people like all kinds of people on the left all kinds of people that want to start stuff that don't know where to start and if you are one of these people that does know where to start fucking spread the good news because we can use some good news <laughs> and for those of you who are compelled to to report on these sorts of things like, just please, if you're going to report on it, just like 
know this context and make sure that this context is part of your reporting. It should be a part of your reporting that this is how organizations are treated, that this is like the level of ex- the things that we expect from organizations are very, very high, that quagmire that you had to go to to even learn how to start an organization that is like above board in this country is not easy. And so, you know, that I think needs to be a part of the reporting. And, uh, you know, maybe some of those things need to change. They probably do. But um, if you're if you are a, an organization that's doing advocacy and you're dealing with money at all, <laughs> like shit's hard. It's not easy, and um, that should be a part of of how we're telling these stories if we're going to tell these stories. Mm-hmm. 